Wow, thank you for the applause. The only time my students applause is when I cancel class. So, thank you for that. Listen, I'm disappointed Mike's not preaching as well. So that's okay, Dad. But I think it's really great what we do for Mike and his wife. Uh, They've been in Israel. I remember reading a book called Seven Habits for Highly Effective People where he said the most important habit is to go back and sharpen your saw. And so giving Mike this time to sharpen himself and his relationship with his wife, we are going to reap the benefits of that. Now, some of you are actually very excited to see me speak because you're thinking I'm going to give away money again in my sermon. (laughs) And that is not going to happen. Um, I want to ask a question this morning. And the question is, do you believe that God is in your corner? Do you believe that God is for you? Now, if you ask that question, I think we'd get some different responses very quickly. I think we'd have one group that would say, oh, absolutely, God is in my corner. Don't have one doubt whatsoever. He's there for me. I think we'd have a middle group, and the middle group would say, you know, uh, yes, God is for me, but boy, this last year has been brutal. Some things have happened, and it just doesn't seem like God's always for me. If he's always coming through for me, my family, my business, as I hoped that he would, then you would have one group, they would say, okay, if you're asking me honestly, I'm going to answer honestly. I don't, I don't think God's in my corner. Not after the five years we've just had, not after the loss, not after the pain, not after disappointment after disappointment, have a prodigal child. Uh, my parents got divorced. I'm not, I'm not so quick to say God is in my corner. So what do, we want to, what do we do with this? I think God, if he wanted to speak to one group in particular, I think the group he'd really want to speak to is this group. I think he'd want to say to this group, now I'm glad you believe that I'm in your corner, but why do you believe that is just as important as your answer. C.S. Lewis says when we become a Christian, we're kind of like a parrot. We learn all these phrases and we just parrot them back to each other. So this morning I want to talk about, is God in our corner? But more importantly, why do you think he is in your corner? Let me share this story. When I was in junior high, uh, the window was open. I was in a classroom, the window was open. The Macintosh brothers, who were in high school, stopped by the window, popped their heads and pointed to me. I didn't know them. Pointed to me and said, after school, we're going to beat you up. I was like, what? Well, and then they left, and the teacher came up to me, and said, obviously I was shaken, and said, do, do you want to call home? And I said, yeah, let me call home. So I called my mom. I said, mom, tell Bob and Ken, my two older brothers, to meet me at the Green Generators, <laughs> right, after school. My mom was like, are you okay? Mom, mom, just tell them Green Generators after school. She said, okay. So after school, the Macintosh brothers grabbed me. <clears throat> We're going to beat you up. I said, okay, let's go by the Green Generators, okay? So... <laughs> We go to the Green Generators. I was not a Christian at the time. And I said the most sincere prayer I've ever said in my life. I said, Bob, Ken, and out came Bob and Ken. Bob would go on to play college football. Ken was just mean. Okay? (laughs) Those were my two brothers. The effect it had on me was unbelievable. I turned to the Macintosh brothers. I said, come on, come on. Right. Then my brother Ken came up to me, my middle brother. He said, give me your glasses. I was like, what? why? He said, give me your glasses. I go, why? He said, because you're going to beat him up first, and then you're going to beat him up. I was like, what? That is not what I envisioned. I said, what are you going to do? He said, we're going to make sure it's a fair fight. 
Now, let me say this. For some of you, you have a green generator story with God, right? You prayed that God would show up, and he showed up exactly like you envisioned he would show up, right? The business was saved at the last hour. Uh, You pulled your marriage around. You prayed for a grade that would keep your scholarship, and you got it, right? So we all have green generator stories like that. But God is going to ask the question, what happens when I don't show up in the way that you wanted me to? Hey, read Psalm 73. Fascinating psalm. The psalmist says this, we went to battle in the name of Yahweh, and we were destroyed as an army. And he literally says to God, where were you? Then you know what he suggests? He suggests, God, you were there, but you were asleep as we got destroyed. Imagine that. Imagine my brothers got there early and had fallen asleep behind the green generators, and I get beat up, and they were there the whole time, but they were asleep. The psalmist yells at God, awake from your slumber. So this morning, I think God wants us to ask a question. Do you believe I'm in your corner? But most importantly, why do you believe it? See, some of you believe God's there because things are going great in your business, great in your marriage. You are raising kids that have started a nonprofit to address sex trafficking, right? And you're like, God's on my side. But God wants to surface within you, what do you really think about me? Now, let me share with you two quotes that have ruined my life, thus I want to ruin yours. Okay, so the first quote is from Oz Guinness. This is what Oz Guinness has to say. The accuracy of our picture of God is not shown in the orthodoxy of our creeds, but in the truths which we assume and count on in those moments when the heat is on, the chips are down, and reality seems to be breathing down our necks. What we presuppose then is the real picture we have of God, and this may be very different from what we profess to believe about God. A.W. Tozer puts it much more succinctly. Tozer says this, Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. So here's what I I think God wants to do. I think God allows trials in our lives. By the way, very interesting theological distinction. Does God cause the trial, orchestrate it, or does he allow it? Boy, we we don't have time to even remotely answer that. If I put my cards on the table, I'm going to go with God allows it, and he's going to redeem it. Hey, bad things happen in a fallen world. Um, Things don't always go according to plan. Right? There's spiritual battle Mike talked about a couple weeks ago. So we need to understand that things happen in life that aren't always just God's will, that they happen. He allows them to happen partly because he wants to have a conversation with you. Right? We're crazy busy Americans, right? Uh, sociologists call this hurry sickness. We're moving at light speed all the time. And God's like, oh, I have a thought for you. Oh, I want to say something. Oh, hey, and we're, we're never fully present in the moment. A trial has a wonderful way of just stopping us dead in our tracks. And now God has our full attention. I don't think he caused it. He allowed it because he wants to have a conversation with us. Because some of us are going to have a horrible, rotten, no good, very bad day, Right? Let's watch this clip from this movie. So Philip Yancey, a Christian writer, says, your disappointment with God can happen one or two ways. One, it can happen through a thousand disappointments. It's the accumulation of 
horrible, really no good, bad days, and eventually you find your confidence in God shaken because of the accumulation of a thousand disappointments. Or, he says, it can be one event. One event that rocks you. Now, some of you are listening to this thinking, I'll take that bad day any day of the week. Compared to what I deal with, the chronic illness my family deals with, uh, marriages that are exploding within my family, a business that went under, uh, we can't even pay our bills. My goodness, I'll take those kind of bad days any day of the week. So what do you do when you find yourself in a tough situation? Well, let me share with you my horrible, no good, very bad week. I was in grad school. Uh, we're struggling to get by. Uh, I'm working with Campus Crusade for Christ. You know, we have three kids. Things are financially tight. Well, there's something called the Harvey Fellowship. The Harvey Fellowship was created to help um, Christian PhD students at non-Christian universities to make an impact for Christ. So somebody came up to me and said, boy, have you heard of the Harvey Fellowship? Seems like you're perfect for it. The more I read about it, the more I thought, I am perfect for the Harvey Fellowship. I'm on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at UNC Chapel Hill wanting to make an impact. I'm perfect for this. J.P. Moreland wrote my letter of reference. Blessed be his name, right? J.P. Moreland. So I thought, this is awesome. The same time I'm filling out this application, my friend Tim Downs, who's written an award-winning book, came into my office and said, hey, let's write a book together. I owe Moody Press one more book. Let's co-write a book together. I'm like, awesome. I had not been published at all, except for a poem in Seventeen Magazine about a piano in a forest who plays by itself. Brilliant! Okay, so... Side, totally true. Okay, so... um, Except for the brilliant part. Okay, so... So I'm thinking, this is just awesome. So I do that. I apply for the Harvey Fellowship. I submit my first book proposal. Now, what do my prayers sound like at this point? My prayers are like this. Oh, Lord, Lord, you are so good. You are, you are good, good. You're awesome. Whatever you want. Oh, whatever you want. Whatever you see fit. You do what you're God, right? This is me, me. It's like this, not like this, this. Abba, you know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) right, right? So then uh, uh, the date comes, the date they're going to announce the Harvey Fellowship. Now the Harvey Fellowship works this way. You break to quarters, you break to semifinals, you break to finals. Even in finals, you're not guaranteed the $20,000 to be used at your discretion. Okay? So the date comes where I know my friends, we've all applied together. They're hearing about it. I'm, I'm not getting anything. It's like nothing. So I'm thinking, oh, no, Lord, you're still good. And this is a trial, a test. And you're still good, a little late, but good, you're good. Right? Wednesday comes, I've not heard anything. Friday comes, I'm calling the Harvey Center. I called the Harvey Center, I said, listen, I know that announcements have gone out. She, the secretary, yes, they have. I was like, okay. I was wondering, I've not received anything. Maybe you have the wrong phone number, wrong email, can you just check? She goes, okay, what's your last name? Muehlhoff, M-U-E-H-L-H-O-F-F. She goes, okay, um, yeah, you didn't break to quarters. Excuse me? Yeah, you didn't break to quarters. I said, Can you, could you check? As if there's two Mielhoffs, right? You know what I mean? She checks. She goes, yeah, I'm really sorry. I hang up the phone. I'm like, oh, 
I get it. Oh, okay. No to the Harvey Fellowship. Yes to the book. Because there's no way he's saying no to both. Right? You know those little hidden contracts you have with God? Right? There's no way he's saying no to both. On the Friday I heard about the Harvey Fellowship, my friend Tim Downs calls me and says, yeah, bummer, Moody Press said no. What? Yeah, I don't know. They said they liked it, but they're not going to do it. Now, I, I journal on my computer. If you were to go from that Friday, six months later, I had not one entry in my journal. I was angry at God angry. With this sneaking suspicion that just got proved, you bless other people more than you bless me. You love other people more than me, and this is my proof. You're not in my corner. Tim Downs, by the way, Tim Downs would go on to write 10 more books. And I'm like, I I, I didn't talk to God. I I didn't even converse with him. Holy Spirit would try to penetrate. And I'd say, but I'm not talking to you. Right? Holy Spirit, you go do you, you got stuff you need to go do. Go, go deal with the Harvey Fellowship people. <laughs> and by the way, how's the second coming coming? <laughs> I was upset, mad, disappointed. So what do we do at those moments? What do we do at that moment? God has our attention and we're just, we're, we're mad, we're angry. I suggest two steps. First step, step number one, see the trial from God's perspective. I think this is incredibly important. John, uh, James says this in James chapter one, consider it all joy. Underline that word joy. Does that not just stick with you? Joy? Consider it all joy. Oh, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow. Okay, how do I view this trial? St. John of the Cross says this about trials. Listen to what he says. The purpose of the darkness is not to punish us or afflict us. See, we've got to settle this right away. If you view a trial as God being mad at you, right? Oh, come on. You said you'd be a better husband. You're, you're not. Boom. Trial. You said your family was going to really be devoted to God this year, and you're not. Boom. Trial. You said you'd be less busy. You'd focus on me more. You didn't. Boom. Trial. You're looking at pornography again. Boom. Trial. If we view it that way, then Every trial is punitive. So let's get rid of this one right away. God is not mad at you. He is never mad at you. All of that was settled 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, we have a doctrine called propitiation. All of God's anger was placed upon Jesus Christ. It's gone. God is never angry at you. Paul would say, there is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is never mad at you. When he looks at you, what does he see? Well, if the doctrine of justification is true, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He looks at you and he sees Jesus' righteousness. 
God will never love you any more, any less than what he does right now. Remember that analogy I shared a couple months ago? You walk in a room, Jesus is there. He turns around, he looks at you. He knows the kind of week you had, right? He's no, he knows what you did. He is overjoyed to see you. God loves you and is delighted with you. Now, we're going to address that in a second. I know there's a ton of objections you want to give. No, he can't be delighted with me because of this. Oh, okay, we'll get to that. But God absolutely loves you. That trial is not punishment, St. John of the Cross would say. It's not. Okay, what about that word joy? That bugs me. So when I get the word from the Harvey Fellowship, I didn't get it. I'm supposed to put on a happy face. Right? Oh, well, I guess I'm happy that God, I'm joyful. See, this is why as Americans we have a hard time with this because we interpret the word happy through a modern lens, not a biblical lens. So, um, if you were to look up the word happiness in the dictionary, what would it say? It would say a, a continuously happy feeling, which means you could be happy doing I Love Fullerton or you could be happy playing Call of Duty killing Nazi zombies. Right? Both produce happiness. That is not what Aristotle thought. Aristotle thought happiness, it was a Greek word, eudaimonia, it's, where it, it, it's, a, it, it's a love that matures you as a person. You become a more virtuous, mature person through this type of happiness. So this is incredibly important at the marriage conferences we speak at. Right? So I'll do this. I, I say this to an audience about this size. I'll say, uh, how many of you would say, using an American definition of happiness, a continual pleasurable feeling, that you have felt continuously happy ever since you got married? Show of hands. And there's always one kissing up to their spouse, okay? But awesome, well played, well played, right? But if I ask this question using Aristotle's definition of, of happiness, which is a maturing um, feeling that matures you as a person, makes you more virtuous, how many of you say marriage has done that in your life? Yeah, absolutely. These definitions make a huge difference. It is in the Aristotelian sense that James uses the word joy. He says, listen, joy is the deep-seated knowledge that God is maturing you and making you more virtuous. So first, God's not mad at you. Do not interpret hard times that God has abandoned you or he's trying to teach you a punitive lesson by inflicting you with a trial. Second, do not interpret joy the way Americans do. Rather, interpret it as this deep-seated maturing process that's causing you to become more virtuous. Okay, step number two. Dialogue with God. When you're in the midst of it and you're disappointed, you're angry, talk to God. Look what James says. This is so interesting James would say that. He says, but if any of you lacks reason for the trial, let him ask of God who gives to all people generously without reproach and it will be given to him. So here's what James is saying. So when you're in the midst of the trial and you're angry, you're disappointed, ask God about it and I promise you he will give this to you generously. He wants you to talk to him and he won't give it to you in reproach. He won't discipline you because you asked it. We could have the attitude of like God could have the attitude towards us. How dare you question me about a trial? How dare you question whether I thought it was okay to allow this trial? No, James takes the opposite response and he says, no, 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 ask. He wants you to ask. It's kind of like what Jesus says, right, in the Gospels. Uh, Knock and it will be open. Ask, ask, ask. So in the midst of the trial, you're angry at God? That's okay. Be angry towards him. Tell him you're angry. 
I love what C.S. Lewis said. Pray, don't pray what you're supposed to pray. Pray what's in you. And it's okay to say to God, I'm mad, I'm confused, I'm disappointed. St. John of the Cross says this about this step. He says, our trials are a divine appointment, a privileged opportunity to draw close to the divine center. Which means, during this time of trial, God has a message for you. And the message is really interesting for us to hear as Americans. Here's the message through the mouth of James, and it won't seem to make sense initially. This is what James says. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. What? Uh, uh, Poor circumstances? That's his way of saying you're poor. You're in the congregation and you're poor. You have no money, but yet you have a high position. What does that mean? It means this. You're poor, you don't have possessions, yet you're certain that God loves you. See, as Americans, we're in a tough spot. We tend to think God loves us, thus our country is blessed economically. God loves this church, thus we're fine financially and we're bursting at the seams with people coming to our church. God loves my family, and thus we are successful. Right? The kids graduate. They're successful. Our business is successful. We have two cars. We have a vacation home. God loves me because I got the Harvey Fellowship. Because I got published. That's how I know God's in my corner. And God is saying, no, that is not why you should know that I'm in your corner. So a poor person, James says, you're actually in a high elevated position because you don't have all the distractions of money, fame, and fortune but you still believe God loves you. What a great place to be. Now we need to ask two questions in closing. One, God still wants to hear the question, do you believe I'm in your corner and why? And second, how does God feel about us? So let's tackle the first one. How do you know God is in your corner? What I'm going to describe is called the principle of the greater to the lesser. Jesus used this teaching strategy a lot. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, if God gave you life, the greater, of course he'll give you food to sustain life, the lesser. If he gave you a body, the greater, of course he'll give you clothes, the lesser to dress the body. Paul takes this attitude and applies it to Jesus' love of you, God's love of you. And this is what he says in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you see what Paul is saying? If God gives you the greatest, Jesus, it implies he's willing to give you the lesser, which is everything else. God gave you the greatest, yet we judge God on the lesser, not the greater. Isn't this silly? So let me, let me give this illustration. Ladies, let me just concede, representing all of men, that you are the stronger of the sexes. Can I just say that? You guys do things that are impossible, like childbirth, okay? If men, we're supposed to coach women in childbirth, which is ridiculous, right? My job was to coach my wife. You look at your wife and you go, go. You know, it's like like coaching an avalanche, okay? Um, But ladies, I can think of two things we have to do that you don't, and they're crazy. One, we have to walk into a diamond factory where we're going to ask you to marry us and buy a diamond. Talk about sheep being led to slaughter. 
What do I know about di- I walk in this diamond factory because I'm asking Noreen to marry me. And this guy sits me down with two microscopes and a diamond under each. He says, hey, look under this one. Do you see all the black spots? Those are impurities. And there's a lot of them. Now, look at this one. Are you looking? There's a few impurities. Thus, a pure diamond. Does, does your future wife not deserve the purest diamond? Here's what I thought to ask. I said, listen, can you see these black specks without a microscope? And he said, no. I said, you know, I'm going to buy the, the, the one with all the black spots. And just bank on the fact that, that Maureen doesn't have a microscope the day I ask her. But then, ladies, we actually ask you the craziest thing in the world, right? I look at my wife, and I, my future wife, and I say, Noreen, Will you hitch your wagon to my wagon for the rest of your life? For the rest of your life. Every date night from here on in will be (laughs) me. Will you do that? And Noreen, crazy, said yes. Now, so she said, I open the thing up. There's a ring. I give it to her. She says yes. Then she, then what, what if she did this? What if she said to me, if she has the ring on, she says, oh, Tim, I want to ask you a question, but I'm just, I'm, I'm really afraid to ask it. I'm like, what? She goes, I love the ring. Could I maybe have the box it came in? I'd be like, no ring. The ring costs thousands of dollars. The box, $3.95. If I gave you the ring, you can have the box. That's what God is saying to us via Paul. If I gave you Jesus, which I did, that implies everything else I'm willing to do. Right? Now, now let's be honest. Does that comfort you? The answer is yes, depending on the timing of it. Go back to the Harvey Fellowship. By the way, I knew that verse when I was denied by the Harvey Fellowship. He did not spare his own son, but gave him us for us all. I knew that verse. It just didn't matter. God said, now that's, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. You know what I think is happening here, Tim Mulehoff? I don't think you really believe I gave you my son. I don't think you really do. I think it's theoretical right now. I don't think you're really living that way. That's why Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. All of you would be enlightened. So guys, I think he gave us Christ. And God is saying, that is the symbol of my love, not your bank account. And not whether the kids are healthy, and not the state of your marriage, and not whether you've had a particularly good week of purity. No, the symbol is, I gave you Jesus, and it needs to stop right there. Because Satan can't touch that, the world, a fallen world can't touch that. That needs to be my symbol. Now, how are you doing with the symbol? Some of you are right here saying, I'm in this group, man. I've heard this before. I've heard this before. I don't know what to do with that. Okay, God's patient with you. Is love patient? Is love kind? Does love understand? God understands. You're in the third group, and that's a hard place to be. By the way, Jesus was in that group. Right? Hey, don't minimize the Garden of Gethsemane, man. Jesus is falling on his face in front of God the Father saying, God, if there's any way, can you remove this cup from me? By the way, the cup in the Old Testament is God's wrath. That's what he's talking about. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, don't think he's play acting there. He's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? 
So Jesus has spent time in the third group. That's why the book of Hebrews says, you have a high priest who can sympathize with you, right? Because he knows what it's like to be in the third group. He knows that. Now, how does God feel about you? Let's end on a really high note, okay? In the book of James, James says something very interesting. This is what he says in James 1.12. He says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Now, does God know the trial is hard? Does he know you're stumbling? Does he know that emotionally it's hard, physically it's hard? Yeah, James says, listen, you're persevering under trial. That's awesome, and God knows how hard it is. Then James slips in this one little comment that I think is so powerful and needs to be the starting point of our relationship with God. He says this, For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to all those who blank. Now, what you put in that blank will determine the trajectory of your entire Christian life. What goes in the blank? You've been approved by God. He's going to give you the crown of life to all those who... Now, if in that blank you say, raise great Christian kids, have a great Christian business that supports missionaries all across the world. Have a, have a great marriage. Kick the pornography habit. Right? If that's what goes in the blank, guess what? You just put yourself on a treadmill. You're going to have good weeks and bad weeks. Right? And God's going to judge your good weeks and bad weeks and hit you with a trial when you have a bad week. If that's your attitude. James doesn't say that. It's so cool what he puts in the blank. But unfortunately, we're out of time. No, I'm just kidding. So what he puts in the blank is so simple, we're going to react negatively against it. Here's what he puts in there. Those who love him. That's it. God's looking at you right now in the midst of a trial. And he says, do you love me? And we want to say yes, but stick a verbal eraser on the end of it. We want to say, yes, but God, you know I've struggled with pornography this last week. You, you know I'm not a great Christian husband. You know how mad I get at my kids. And God says, okay, great. That's not the standard. The standard is, do you love me? By the way, why do you think Jesus said that to Peter? You know, P- Peter had the golden opportunity to testify for Christ and absolutely blew it. I just got back from Israel. I stood in the place where Peter denied Jesus three times. Now, sometimes we think the reason Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me, is to co- coincide with the three times uh, Peter denied him. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But i rather look at it this way. P- Jesus looks at Peter, who just, this wasn't that long ago, denied him and says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter wants to say, oh, Lord, but I blew it. I blew it. Okay, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, and I promise I'll never deny Peter. Do you love me? All he wants from Peter is, yes. See, we want, we, we want to quickly add something else. So God's looking at you right now. He knows the week, the month, the year you just had. And he's looking at you and he's saying, do you love me? And we want, we want to go, yes, but you know, I just blew it so bad. I just... Oh. He wants to get you to the point, even in the midst of the trial, where you simply say, Lord, I love you. And we so want to add to it, right? So God says to me, Timulhoff, do you love me? And I'm like, yes.
And God's like, good, good. That's enough. You need to leave with this quote. St. Anne said this. The mere fact that you want to please God pleases God. The mere fact that you want to love him and you struggle, God is pleased with that. He knows about group three and he knows about group two and he knows about group one. He is pleased with the mere fact that you want to love him. Now, how do we express that love? We're about to have communion. You're going to receive the elements. You're going to receive a cup, has uh, grape juice in it. That represents his blood. For you, not for E.V. Free Fullerton, not for the world. But remember what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. Own it. Jesus died for you. That bread, that little wafer you're going to get represents his body broken for you. Now listen, here's the seductive um, danger of what I'm advocating. I do believe God loves me, but you know what creeps in every once in a while? Because now I am published. Now I have won some teaching awards at Biola. Ah, God loves me, right? That's the power of Job, right? God said with Job, okay, done with Satan. Take everything, save his life. Let's see if he still loves me. And Job, at the end of the day, says, God, I love you for who you are, not what I have. Uh." As American church, we need to hear that. So communion is God's best expression of of why you know he's in your corner, because Jesus died for you. Let's celebrate that with Holy Communion. Let me pray for us. Father, we are humbled by the death of Jesus. We know what it cost him. We know the pain, the agony the dark night of the soul that he went through. But as the writer of Hebrews says, he did it for the joy set before him. We are that joy. Father, I pray for people who are rooted in group three right now. They are so struggling. Father, I pray that today, even in the midst of their doubt, the midst of their pain, they would feel through this act of communion your blessing and pleasure on them even in the midst of their hurting. Father, thank you that you love us because of Christ. You, you are in our corner because you gave us the greatest. And let this communion service be part of that. We pray in your son's name. Amen.